Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, Philippians 3. You'll need a Bible to follow along, so these guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back, so if you need a Bible, just get their attention, and they'll get one of those that they have to you. It's marked for you at Philippians chapter 3. You will only live a Christian life if you first adopt a Christian worldview. We always behave in accordance with what we believe. And if our beliefs are not consciously adopted from Scripture, then they will be unconsciously adopted from the culture. We've seen this happening in the wider evangelical church for decades now. It's happened so much so that we hardly notice just how worldly we become. Instead of being transformed by the renewing of our minds, we have been conformed to the world. Despite the explicit command of Scripture in Romans 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This shows up in a number of ways, including the way church is done. Sometimes it's referred to as doing church, how we do church. It shows up in the way church is done with worldly entertainment replacing reverent worship of a holy God. And pastors who do a sort of stand-up routine as replacement for the proclamation of God's word. But it also affects the way professing Christians live their everyday lives as they see God and themselves not through the lens of Scripture but from the perspective of the world. For example, one author has commented on the devastating impact humanistic psychology has had on the church. One of the basic assumptions of modern psychology is that people exist for their own satisfaction. The primary goal of life, then, is for people to have all of their perceived needs and desires met. And contemporary presentations of the gospel often reflect that humanistic philosophy. God has become a sort of utilitarian genie who exists to grant people whatever it takes to make them happy and fulfilled. But scripture presents Jesus Christ as sovereign Lord and Savior before whom every knee will bow in absolute submission and obedience. But contemporary gospel presentations offer him as the quick cure for all of life's problems, despite his own warning given in John 16. In this world, you will have trouble. The most glaring example of the current man-centered approach is the prosperity gospel, with its unabashed pursuit of the things of the world. Those attitudes of selfish satisfaction are the opposite of the attitude of true spirituality. Spirituality, which is humble, self-effacing awareness of sin and deep gratitude for the least expression of God's grace. The narcissism that pervades contemporary Christianity has also corrupted the doctrine of sanctification. That is how people grow in their faith. Jesus taught this, I remind you, that whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. In stark contrast, the emphasis today is on meeting people's needs and fulfilling their desires. Only then, it is argued, can they be effective Christians. And this is sort of Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs 
baptized into Christianity. In a book called Need, the New Religion, author Tony Walter said, it is fashionable to follow the view of some psychologists that the self is a bundle of needs and that personal growth is the business of progressively meeting those needs. Many Christians go along with such beliefs. One mark of the almost total success of this new morality is that the Christian church traditionally keen on mortifying the desires of the sin nature, on crucifying needs of the self in pursuit of Christ's likeness, has eagerly adopted the language of needs for itself. We now hear things like Jesus will meet your every need as though he were some kind of divine psychiatrist, as though God were there simply to serve us. Now, we saw three weeks ago in our series in the book of Philippians, The chapter 3 tells us that the goal of the Christian life is to be conformed to the image of God the Son, Jesus Christ. In the words of verse 10 of chapter 3, it is for us to be like Him, whatever that takes, including suffering and death. And in verse 13, Paul, who wrote this book, says, this is the one thing I do. Elsewhere, the Bible says, Those God foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. And this is why Jesus said repeatedly, follow me. And the Bible says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So that's the goal. It's not ultimately our happiness, but our holiness. For us to be like Jesus. But how do we do that? How do we avoid the undue influence of the world and follow Christ in order to become like Christ? We're going to see that together today from our passage in Philippians 3. But let's ask the Lord to help us as we do. Father, thank you for gathering us. It is you who have made it possible for us to be here now in this sacred hour to put aside the cares of the world, to focus our minds and open our hearts to the truth of your word. You've made it possible. We have this appointment with you to do business with you from your word. So we ask you, Lord, to help us keep any distraction from making that happen. Help us to remind ourselves right now of the importance of what we do so that we look into the mirror of your word. We see clearly We see you there. We see ourselves there. And that we are changed by it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we have an outline for you inserted in your program. We have that every week. And I encourage you every week to look at it. Because it will help you follow along as we go through the message. So if you don't have that out already, please take that out. And you'll see in that outline that I say, first of all, to become like Christ, we must... Follow those who serve him. To become like Christ, we must follow those who serve him. And I say that because of what verse 17 says. Verse 17 of chapter 3, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Now those words, like all of those in your New Testament, were originally written in the Greek language. And the Greek word that's translated in verse 17, example, is the word tupon. We get our word type from it. It originally meant to strike. Now, some of us are old enough to remember a typewriter. 
And you would strike the key on the typewriter, which caused like a metal arm to strike the page and leave an imprint on it. It comes from this word tupan, to type, to strike. In the ancient world, they would mint coins by taking a die, placing it on metal, and then striking it. The imprint on the die would be left on the metal. It was a type. It was an image. Now, at first, what Paul, who wrote this, says here, follow my example, may sound conceited. But if we remember two things, we'll see that it's not arrogant at all. The first is what we saw a few weeks ago, earlier in chapter 3, where Paul, who, as I say again, wrote this, says of himself in verse 12 of chapter 3, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived. So he does not claim to be perfect or to have made it. He's saying, I'm not the finished product, but I am a type. Becoming like Jesus, the image of Christ, is our goal. And that has been struck on my life. And so far as I reflect the character of that goal, Christ Jesus, then you follow me. But further, he's not the only one who he says should be followed. The last part of verse 17 says this. Just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So it's not, he says, just Paul that we follow, but verse 17 refers to us in the plural and we. It's speaking of Paul and his associates, like those whom we saw a few weeks back in chapter 2, men like Timothy and Epaphroditus. And I refer you back to chapter 2 for just a moment. Chapter 2 and verse 3 where we were told in verse 3 there, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So that's what we're supposed to do. If we're going to be like Christ, that's one of the ways in which we will show Christ. Because, of course, he put the interests of others before himself. That's what verses 5 through 8 are about. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus of chapter 2. He's the supreme example of that. But do we have any other examples of that? And later in chapter 2, Paul says, yes, we do. We have, for example, Timothy. And look at verse 19 of chapter 2. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like Timothy who will show genuine interest for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And so you have Paul, who's giving himself as the Lord Jesus did. He's a type, Paul is, but you also have Timothy as well. But not just Paul and Timothy. There's Epaphroditus, down in verse 25 of chapter 2. I think it's necessary to send back to you, Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. And down in verse 29, he says this, When Epaphroditus comes, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. Why? Verse 30, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. So in Paul, you have an apostle the highest human authority in the church in the first century. 
In Timothy, you have one who would become a pastor in the city of Ephesus. And in Epaphroditus, it appears you have just a regular church member. He's not an apostle. He's not a pastor, but just a Christian who is sold out to Christ. You have their examples from 2000 years ago. But hear this now. You also have living, breathing examples today in our own church. As I thought about this, I was moved to praise the Lord for the many, many people in this church who are following hard after Christ and who can serve as models of godliness. Our leadership team is comprised of men and their wives who love Jesus Christ and who have arranged their lives so that he and what is important to him, his mission, his church, his people, those have become their priorities. And beyond the formal leadership team, we have many people who lead by their faithfulness. But you can't follow the example of any of them, hear this, if you don't know them. So I'd encourage you to intentionally get to know faithful, godly people in this church. Ask them why they do what they do. They'll be glad to tell you. Ask them how it is they do what they do. How do you make time for what it is you do? How do you stay at it week in and week out? The, week, the truth is we learn by watching others. Young Johann Sebastian Bach was a studied observer of the great organist and composer Dietrich Buxtehude. Bach made repeated long trips on foot to Buxtehude's church to observe and hear the master, even copying the composer's scores by hand, all of which had a marked effect on Bach's style and vitality and the shaping of Bach's own brilliance. Thirty-two years ago, in the first year of our marriage, Kim and I were looking for a church where we could learn and grow and serve as a young couple. In addition, I believe that God was calling me to pastoral ministry. And so we not just needed a church, but I needed a place where I could be mentored by one already pastoring. In God's good providence, we found Huron Baptist Church in Flat Rock, the church out of which this church was planted 15 years ago. And the 16 years I spent learning from and serving with Pastor Steve Thomas were absolutely invaluable in helping me to learn how to lead a church. The lessons that I learned there through many good times and some hard ones shaped me for the task the Lord would later have for me here. Friends, I am living testimony to the value that the imprint of one life can have on another. And it's God's design that we follow the examples of godly people. To become like Christ, we must follow those who serve him. But I say secondly in your outline. We must reject those who devalue him. Follow those who serve him, but reject those who devalue him. The last part of verse 18 says, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, when you read here a warning about the enemies of the cross, you might be inclined to think, that these are self-professed unbelievers who by their nature are opposed to Christ and his work. It's like an enemy of the cross. I mean, there are plenty of people who don't embrace the cross, you may think. But to be an enemy of the cross, you would have to be an avowed unbeliever, an outspoken atheist or something like that. But if that's who was being referred to here, there would really be no need to warn against them, right? 
Why would Paul have to write to Christians in Philippi to say, beware of these atheists out there? Of course, unbelievers are enemies of the cross. Instead, these people profess to believe in Christ. But they teach and in turn, as we're going to see, how they live actually denies Christ. What they teach and how they live denies him. They claim to be believers, but they contradict truths about Christ's work. Now, the phrase there in verse 18, enemies of the cross, actually says in the original Greek, the enemies of the cross. So for the Philippians to whom this was first written, these enemies were identifiable. They knew who they were and who Paul was addressing. It appears that they fell into two groups, just as they do today. The first group we saw earlier in this chapter back a few weeks ago, when it speaks of those who denied the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross for our salvation. Verse 2 of chapter 3 refers to a group called the Judaizers. These were professing Christians of Jewish ethnicity. They were professing Jewish Christians who wanted to add circumcision and the keeping of the law as necessary to become a Christian. Verse 2 says of them, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. That's one category. In our passage today, it's probably speaking of a second group of enemies of the cross. Instead of Jewish false teachers, this is probably referring to Gentile false teachers. John MacArthur says some Gentile false teachers held to the dualistic philosophy prevalent in then contemporary Greek thought. Those heretics, forerunners of the dangerous second century heresy known as Gnosticism, taught that spirit was good and matter was evil. So for them, salvation ultimately involved not the redemption of our material bodies, but deliverance from our material bodies. So since the body is matter, it's material, and is incurably evil, according to them, then hear this, they taught that it does not matter what one does with the body. Its desires can be fulfilled by things like gluttony or drunkenness or sexual immorality, None of this mattered since it affected only the body, not the spirit. So you have these two categories, and we have them today, as we're going to see. You have the Judaizers who added to the cross of Christ the requirements of the law, denying the sufficiency of the cross. And then you have the Gentile false teachers who taught that Christians can indulge the flesh, and so they denied the power of the cross. One denying the sufficiency, another denying the power. Now, who cares about all of that since it was 2,000 years ago? You haven't met recently a Judaizer? Actually, I have recently. They go by different names, though. But there's still people who add to the requirements of salvation. Even if they're not called by the name Judaizer. Or... You haven't uh, met people who say it's okay for you to indulge in sexual immorality in church lately, but we're going to see that there are people who devalue the cross by minimizing the requirements of those who would follow it. So we'll see that in just a bit. But for now, take a look at your outline. And I say the influence of these false teachers that we must reject. 
their influence should be disturbing to us. And I say that because of what verse 18 says. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears. Paul was greatly distressed about the influence of ungodliness, so it was a frequent topic of discussion with him. He says, in effect here, I've told you many times, I'm going to tell you now again. This was a frequent theme. Watch out for the influence of ungodliness. He's so troubled by it that it brought him to tears. Now think about that. Here's a man under house arrest awaiting a life or death verdict for preaching the gospel. That not only did not bring tears. In fact, he was constantly talking about his joy in these very circumstances. Only the horrible reality of the spread of error was able to bring tears out of the heart of the apostle. We see him have a similar reaction when he visited the city of Athens, Greece. And he saw that great city filled with idols. The Bible says this about that event. Paul was waiting for them in Athens. And he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, the word translated greatly distressed is the word from which we get our word paroxysm, a seizure. Paul had a visceral reaction to the effect of false teaching. And that reaction that seized him, that gripped him, that disturbed him and bothered him greatly, moved him to action. The next verse says this, so. So because of that, because he was so attuned to truth and so opposed to error and he has this reaction to it, so he's moved to do something. He reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Friend, we should be moved to tears and even to righteous anger when we see the gospel added to or detracted from. The influence of error is deadly to the souls of people. The Bible calls it leaven that will leaven the whole lump. Last Sunday in the Detroit News, there was an article. Sunday afternoon, I got online, pulled up the Detroit News. First article that comes up is about a new church and its grand opening in Taylor. The first lines of the story quoted the pastor as saying this in his sermon. People don't hate on Jesus. People are okay with God. Their complaint is with the church. And when I read that, I had that, not quite a seizure. People don't hate on Jesus. People are okay with God. Now, it's a reporter saying that's what he said. So maybe he didn't say it. So I wrote to him. Did you say that? Because I know reporters sometimes get it wrong. And he wrote back. Yep, I said it. But I don't really believe that. That's what he told me. I mean, I understand that people reject Christ and all of that. Well, here's the thing. Then say that. Then tell the truth. Because the truth is thousands of people in Metro Detroit just read something that's false. 
The Bible says the mind of unsaved people is, quote, hostile toward God. Don't tell me people are okay with God. The people loved Jesus when he did miracles. You remember as you read through the Gospels. But John 6 tells us that as soon as he called them to follow him and all of that and all that entails, they turned on him. Yes, they hated on Jesus. And people are most assuredly not okay with God. And yet, as I say, thousands of people in Metro Detroit are left with the false impression that their problem with God is not due to them, but due to the church. The influence of false teachers should be disturbing. And I say in your outline as well, their influence is always growing. Always growing. Verse 18 says, many live as enemies of the cross. Many live as enemies. Many. Now, for most of us, we would go, well, you know, that's the exception, not the rule. Paul says many live. Not just a few. This does not mean that they don't mention the cross of Christ. Remember, these are professing believers. It's just a different cross and a different Christ than the one the Bible speaks of. Some time ago, I saw a clip of Joel Osteen talking about Jesus dying on the cross. But rather than Jesus dying, as the Bible says, for our sins, Osteen went on and on about how he died to make us free from poverty and want and lack. There are many health and wealth teachers on TV, and I urge you yet again, avoid them. Avoid Joyce Meyer. Avoid Kenneth Copeland and all of their ilk. And if you want the full list, I'll be happy to give it to you. The Jesus they talk about and the gospel they peddle are not the Jesus and gospel of the Bible. And friends, if you think that I am being harsh, I could never match the great apostle for harshness on this. The Bible says in Galatians 1, if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be under God's curse. Now, I said earlier that there are two groups represented in chapter 3, and these are still with us today in these two broad categories. For the first group, those who add requirements to faith in Christ for salvation, Many today say that faith alone in the work of Christ is not sufficient for salvation. Right? You know that, don't you? That many teach that. That most actually teach that. That faith alone in Christ is not sufficient for salvation. Most teach that. That's what the Protestant Reformation was all about. This year, 2017, is the 500th year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. October 31st of this year. That's what that was all about. Faith alone in Christ for salvation. Many teach that. Some, for example, teach that baptism is necessary to salvation. That having faith in Christ is necessary but not sufficient. You must also be baptized. Now, you should be baptized. We preach that. The Bible says that. But baptism, we say right on the application, does not add to your salvation. It does not help you to be saved. But there are many people who teach that. We have a church, and I'll just have to tell you as your pastor, we have a church right across Fort Street that teaches that very thing. That baptism is necessary for salvation. 
Others teach that sacraments and our works must be added to the work of Christ. On the other extreme are those that teach this other category that having placed faith in Christ, you're going to go to heaven no matter how you live. But the Bible teaches this, friends, that those who truly believe in Christ are changed. And they take up their cross and they follow Jesus. Yes, they are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone in the words of Martin Luther. This group of false teachers is of the libertine rather than the legalistic variety. As indicated by how they're described in verse 19. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Now the word that's translated destruction is a word that's always reserved to describe eternal damnation in hell. Notice, though, here that it's used in the context of tears, and that should be instructive for us. May we never contemplate and think about the horrors of eternal separation from God in the eternal penitentiary of the damned called hell. May we never contemplate those horrors other than through tears. As we think about what that actually means for those who reject the gospel in its purity. Destruction is the destiny of those who either add to or detract from the work of Christ. In the case of those who subtract from, the passage teaches that they're consumed with sensuality. It says their God is their stomach. That is, they're moved by fleshly desires. They're moved by the pursuit of pleasure. They're moved by what makes them feel good. And they want a religion that makes them feel good and allows them to pursue that pleasure. And in addition, they boast about their sin. Verse 19 says their glory is in their shame. What they should be ashamed of, they actually glory in. We have an example of this in 1 Corinthians 5. It says it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. And then it goes on to say, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put the offender out of your fellowship? In the church at Corinth, there was sin that was so hideous that even the unbelievers would not be tolerant of such a sin. And yet they were proud that this sin was taking place. They boasted in how tolerant they were rather than being grieved as they should have been. Friends, we've got that going on today, right? The church is going to be tempted as it never has before to boast in its tolerance of what God says is intolerable. We have that going on now. You know it's going to intensify. Do you know that? Are you ready for that? Do you believe the gospel fully? And are you willing to take a stand for that? Hear this. We can love truth and love people at the same time. But we cannot, in our love of people, sacrifice our love for truth. We can love truth and love people at the same time if we follow the example of our Lord, who the Bible says was full of both grace and truth. In fact, it's the most unloving thing we can do for those who desperately need the truth to compromise it. 
And the root of the entire problem is stated in at the end of verse 19. They're focused on earthly things. Their mind is set on earthly things. As a man thinks, so is he. Their minds were focused on the temporary. Their minds were focused on the material. They couldn't see beyond this life. They couldn't see into eternity. And so they set their sights on the goal of earthly things. We saw a few weeks ago that our sight must be focused upon the finished line. Paul says, I strain toward the goal. Where our Savior awaits us. He is our goal. Our sight must be upon Him. But those of this world cannot see Him and they think only of the things of this world. To become like Christ, we must follow those who serve Him. We must reject those who devalue Him. And thirdly, we must live like those who long for Him. And doing that means a couple of things. It means that we live like aliens in a foreign land. If we're longing for Jesus, then it means while we're here and not with him, then we are living like aliens in a foreign land. I say that because of verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, in one of the messages of this series, back when we were looking at chapter 1, I mentioned that Philippi was located in the heart of a region known as Macedonia, east of Greece. And back in 42 B.C., as a result of a role that Philippi played in a great battle that took place in the struggle for control of Rome, Philippi was granted the status of a Roman city. All of the citizens of Philippi became Roman citizens. It was a very special privilege. We saw when we were looking back at chapter 1 and verses 27 to 30 that Paul used that historic event, the fact that Philippi, though located in Macedonia, was a Roman city. He used that as an illustration of how they must live as citizens of a foreign homeland. And now in chapter 3 and verse 20, he returns to that theme. This passage has in the background their status as a Roman colony. And it draws from that fact of history to illustrate the way that we must view ourselves as we live in this world. And this is the foundation of all that this passage has been saying. When it teaches on the one hand to follow the influences of the godly and on the other hand resist the influences of the ungodly, we do this because we are aliens, we are foreigners in this world. We live while here according to the laws of our homeland. And our homeland ultimately is not America. It's heaven. Some years ago, a man named Michael Fay learned the hard way that when you live in a foreign country, the laws of that land apply to you. He was the man, some of you may remember, who had vandalized cars while he was in Singapore and he was sentenced to six lashes with a cane. But did you know that when you're in a foreign land, not only do the laws of that land apply to you, the laws of your homeland still apply. The laws of your citizenship apply to you wherever you travel in this world. You cannot step across the border and break laws with impunity. And this is the issue then being addressed in this passage. Our citizenship is in heaven. 
We follow the example of the godly. We resist the influence of the ungodly because we are citizens of a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. We do not belong to this world. In the words of the songwriter, we're just passing through. Our citizenship is elsewhere. But it's easy for us to forget that, isn't it? Remember I said at the beginning, if we do not consciously adopt our values from Scripture, we will unconsciously absorb them from the culture. And it's so easy for us to forget this is not my home. As you get older, you start to train in on that. As Dr. Combs preached last week about life after death from 2 Corinthians 5, the older we get, the more we think about that. But we should think about it when we are young. Ecclesiastes tells us to do that, to think about those things when we are young. Psalm number 90 teaches us that, teach us to number our days, the fact that they are very few so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. With every year, though, and every passing of a loved one on our citizen, our citizenship in heaven becomes more real to us. But let's make it real even before that, friends. I want to challenge you then to understand that we are not from this place. Our citizenship is in heaven and we live, I say in the outline, in anticipation. Because verse 20 says this, we eagerly await a savior from there, from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we live in anticipation, which means we anticipate our king. And our king is not just any king. Our king is called in Scripture the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We are in a foreign land, and as such, we're subject to the laws of this land, but we need to remember that the rulers of this world and the laws of this land must be in subjection to one who is greater. There are kings in this world, but we serve the King of all kings. There are principalities in this world, but we serve the Lord of all lords. Our citizenship is elsewhere, and we eagerly await the return of our king. I wonder if we are more eager that he should appear or that we should disappear. You know, you think about that. I mean, we can say, yeah, I long for heaven, but what that means is basically beam me up. Get me out of here. And of course, that's a valid desire, living in a fallen world with all its pain and all of that. But do we long for Jesus? Do we long for the king and his appearance rather than our just disappearance? We live here now with a task before us. We serve him in this land as his ambassadors. And one day he's coming for us. Now hear this, this means that, among other things, what's most important is not who's sitting in the Oval Office, but who's sitting on the throne of heaven. Now, I'm going to beat this horse one more time. And I thought about it, and I thought, I don't know. But I can't, given the context. I've got to say again, friends. Some of you are putting too much value in a presidential election whether your candidate won or lost. I've warned several times about that. I hear this. Our church has lost at least one family. And they gave me permission to say this. We've lost at least one family because they could not handle the vocal, quote, Trump love coming from some within our congregation. 
I've asked you to consider your words and how you represent the Lord during and after the election. And many of you have taken that word to the wise. and Thank you for that. Unfortunately, some have not. And so I ask you yet again to think about what you're doing as you align yourself with the character of a man like Donald Trump. I'm not talking about how you voted. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about aligning yourself with the character of the man. I respect the position. You should too. I respect that he's elected as our president. I pray for him. I hope he does well. But I do not respect the man's character. And I'm telling you as a Christian to be careful about aligning yourself. You can support his positions while distancing yourself as a Christian from the man and his character. And for the sake of the gospel, I'm asking you again to do this. It matters. What matters most is not who's in the Oval Office, right? I mean, you don't have to say anything I'm not looking for, but some of you agreed before I got into the Trump thing. And then after that, well, wait a minute. Maybe I do think it matters a lot more. What matters most is who's on the throne in heaven. We live in anticipation. We anticipate our king. And lastly, we anticipate our transformation. Verse 21, we wait for a savior from there. Verse 20, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. It doesn't just say transforming our bodies. It says our lowly body, meaning our humble body. That's an accurate description of us in all of our weakness, in all of our frailty, in all of our suffering. In all of our inevitable death, barring the return of the king in the rapture. There's nothing more humbling and nothing more certain to bring us back to the eternal realities of life than to stand beside the bed of one suffering and to watch his lowly body decline. To stand and watch the loved ones suffering and struggling as they're hooked up to a life support machine. To stand beside a casket and realize that the one whom we've loved for so long is no longer housed within that body. And that body is now going to decay further. This body that is our current home is lowly. But when the king of king comes, he will transform this lowly body into one that's like his own. Verse 21 says he will transform our lowly body so that they will be like his glorious body. We're going to be changed to be like him fully in every respect. And think about what that means. It means that we're going to be given a body that's suited for life in our homeland. As it is now, we've been changed internally. We're children of God. And yet we live in a body that's been accustomed to sin. It's been habituated to making sinful decisions. One day that body will be changed and we'll be able to stand in his pre- the presence of him who can tolerate no sin. We will be like him, guaranteed, because verse 21 says, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will do this transformation. By the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, well, what power does he have? In Matthew 28 and verse 18, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the risen Savior and the glorified Christ stood before the apostles 
And before he sent them out on a worldwide mission to take the good news of the gospel to every nation, he said these famous words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The king of kings possesses all power. The Bible tells us that in the exercise of that authority, Jesus Christ is bringing history to a grand climax and there's coming a day when all people and all things will be under his control. And this verse is saying it's that same power that guarantees the promise that when we see him, we will be like him. Until that glorious day, friends, we live by the laws of the homeland. We follow the example of the godly and we resist, reject the influence of the ungodly. And so here's your take home truth. To become like Christ, we must pursue godly values. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For the Lord Jesus Christ and his person and work upon the cross. Lord, there is nothing that need be added to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing. When he sat on the cross, it is finished. It is fully sufficient for all that we need for a relationship with you. You've provided that because of your love for us. You've given us this glorious good news message to tell people. But Lord, help us not to water it down in one direction or the other. Help us, Lord, not to demean it in any way by adding requirements to it. Help us not to demean it in the other direction by suggesting it has no power to transform people so that they live new lives. Both of these are taught in your word that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. But then we live lives that are worthy of the one who has called us because you are transforming us from the inside out. Oh, Lord, help us to teach both of those. Help us to teach that with vigor and help us to resist any alteration of those truths, no matter how well sounding, no matter by whom given. May, as a result, this church, this group of people in our neighborhoods, and then the message that goes out from here, May it be the pure, unadulterated gospel that brings glory to you so that all who come to it can say, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, because the Lord is the one who has done it. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.